Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 62 of the show, and it is another loaded episode for you this week. Lots of NFL football to discuss as the two conference championship games have been played. We'll recap both of those. We have a Super Bowl matchup that is set, so we'll discuss that. Uh, We'll recap some PGA Tour golf and preview this weekend's tournament. Then, of course, do our standings updates in the NBA and the NHL, which has reached the all-star break, so we'll get into that. And then just a loaded Around the Island segment. Lots of NFL news, Major League Baseball news, uh, some NHL news as well, so We'll cover all that. We're going to start off in the PGA Tour, and this past weekend's tournament was the Farmers Insurance Open, and that was held at Torrey Pines Golf Course, which is in La Jolla, California, just outside of San Diego. The golfers played two courses, the North Course and the South Course. Both of them played to a par 72. The distance on the North Course, which is the easier of the two, 7,258 yards, And then the south course, a little more challenging, 7,765 yards, so about 500-yard difference there. All of the golfers played one round on the north and one round on the south course uh, for the first two rounds. Then they had the 36-hole cut, and the final two rounds were both played on the south course. This weekend's tournament was actually a rare Wednesday through Saturday format instead of the typical Thursday through Sunday. So the final round was on Saturday this week. Kind of uh, interesting. I I watched pretty much all of the entire uh, final round on Saturday. Got to get a lot of golf in this weekend. And, um, you know, it was just good to to watch golf on a Saturday considering there was no football. So that was interesting this week. Pretty good field in this one. Uh, Torrey Pines usually brings out the best. Uh, We had six of the top ten golfers in the world. You know, John Rahm. Justin Thomas, Sanders Shoffley, uh, Daniel Berger, Dustin Johnson, Scotty Scheffler. Those guys all teed it up out there. So it was a good field. Uh, but in the end, Luke List was your winner with a score of 15 under par. And he did so in a playoff hole over Will Zalatoris, who had also finished at 15 under par. Now, the weird thing about this is that Will Zalatoris was in the final group on Sunday. And Luke List was about six holes ahead of Zalatoris. So when Luke List finished at 15 under, uh, he was your clubhouse leader. Zalatoris was also at 15 under par, but he was still on hole 12. So we had six holes left. Um, I don't assume that List believed that he would have uh, that would have held up, but it did nonetheless. And uh, Zalatoris ended up parring all of his holes on the back nine on Sunday to stay at 15 under and force the playoff with Luke List. And in that playoff hole, uh, well, 
before that, Luke List had about an hour and 45 minutes to warm up and think about a potential playoff hole. So uh, he had quite a bit of time, not ideal for List, but uh, in that playoff hole, they replayed the par 5 18th. Uh, both of their tee shots went right. Uh, they were both pretty pretty errant tee shots off the tee to the right. They both landed in the same bunker about four inches apart from each other. Uh, it was unbelievable. Uh, they were sitting right next to each other in that bunker. Uh, List hit first. He hit to the left side of the fairway. Zalatoris hit second, and he hit to the left side of the fairway, and their balls landed about eight yards apart uh, on their second shot. So they were playing the, the hole the exact same way. Uh, but then the third shot is where Luke List pretty much won this thing. It's 133 yards out, just hit a smooth pitching wedge and uh, got a lot of backspin, rolled about 20 feet backwards towards the hole, maybe 25 feet, and uh, ended up stopping about a foot from the cup. Now, Zalatoris, with the pressure on him, he put a good third shot out there as well. He uh, he put it on the green, and it, it kind of rolled back. He was below the hole, about eight feet or so uh, beneath the hole, and uh, he missed his uphill putt, uh, just kind of pulled it a little left. And uh, List, of course, tapped in for his birdie. So uh, uh, Luke List won the hole with a birdie. Zalatoris parred it. And uh, Luke List is your winner. It's his first career PGA Tour victory in his 206th start. Uh, so congrats to him. He, he, that was an exceptional, uh, exceptional round of golf on, uh, on Saturday's final round where he shot uh, six under 66 uh, to do so. He only had one bogey. Uh, otherwise, he would have run it, won it outright. So Zalatoris was solo second after that playoff loss. There was a three-way tie for third at 14 under par between John Rahm, Cameron Tringali, and Jason Day. Now, Day was in the final group as well, and uh, he was started off, first few holes looked pretty good, um, ended up bogeying a couple, and then he eagled the 14th on a beautiful shot, uh, second shot on a par four, same thing, put backspin on it, and it rolled right into the cup. It was it was really a thing of beauty. Day looked good, though. Doesn't look like he's hampered by any injuries. He did shoot an even par 72 in Saturday's final round, but uh, there were a handful of guys at 13 under par, which was T6. That was Joaquin Neiman, Justin Rose, Pat Perez, Sung J M, and Aaron Rye, who uh, actually started off pretty good. Uh, this weekend, he he went 67, 68, 68, and then uh, had a rough start on Saturday to kind of take himself out of it. But he did look good there at times on Saturday. So uh, it was a good tournament. Like I said, first career victory for Luke List. And uh, this weekend, the PGA Tour stays in California, and they move over to Pebble Beach for the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am it is back on the regular Thursday through Sunday schedule. Uh, last year, they only used a two-course rotation for their first three rounds. Uh, this year, they are using a three-course rotation, which is what they normally do for the first three rounds of the tournament. Every golfer is going to play one round at each of the courses. Of course, you have the Pebble Beach Golf Links, which is a par 72 distance, 6,792 yards. Spyglass Hill is the second course. That's also a par 72 
Distance is 7,041 yards. And then the final course is the Monterey Peninsula Country Club, the shore course, which is a par 71. And that distance is 6,957 yards. So uh, players, like I said, are going to rotate through all three courses before playing the final round on Sunday at Pebble Beach. So uh, if you make the cut, you're going to get two rounds at Pebble. And I would say the field for this is fairly average. Uh, Ten of the top 50 in the world are going to be out there. Uh, you got Patrick Cantlay is the highest-ranked golfer at fourth in the world. Jordan Spieth at 15. Daniel Berger, 16. Zala, Will Zalatoris, 29th. Justin Rose, 39th. And, and then Jason Day, after his strong finish there at Torrey Pines, uh, he's going to tee it up here at Pebble. And he's uh, never missed the cut at Pebble, 12 for 12. So he's he's looking like he's going to be in contention again this week. Daniel Berger is the defending champion, and he's looking to become the first repeat winner at Pebble since Dustin Johnson, which was uh, more than a decade ago. And then Cantlay, Patrick Cantlay actually tied the course record in last year's opening round with a 62. So he came out guns blazing. He finished uh, in his last two starts, Patrick Cantlay's, finished T3 and T11 here at Pebble. So he's going to be another guy that's going to compete. He's the best golfer in the field this week. And then Jordan Spieth, he uh, he missed the cut last week at Torrey Pines, so he wants to obviously avenge that. He finished T3 here last year, and then he's won this thing back in 2017. So I'd look for those three guys along with Jason Day to uh, put a strong showing up this week. And then on the Pro-Am side of things, you, of course, have some celebrities uh, that are going to take place in that. Jake Owen, Darius Rucker, Bill Murray, and then some athletes will be out there. Mia Hamm, former uh, soccer player, uh, Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder Mookie Betts, and Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen. They will all be taking place in the Pro-Am portion of this tournament. So it'll be a fun, a fun weekend there at Pebble Beach. I'll definitely be tuned in uh, to the Pro-Am portion and the uh, regular tournament portion and uh, Pebble's always fun. It's a tough course. Weather can certainly be a factor. Uh, the wind can get going in a hurry, and that's uh, been known to rain there uh, as well. So uh, they're going to have to fight the conditions, but uh, looking forward to a good tournament on tour for sure this weekend. But we'll move on to the National Football League and recap both of the conference championship games that took place this past weekend. And just like all four divisional round games, these two games were both uh, great games. One of them was decided in overtime, and the other one was decided on a late field goal. Not last second, but uh, nonetheless, both games were decided by three points. And uh, this was actually the first time in 12 years that the conference championship games were played without either Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers being a part of them. So, uh, it was good and refreshing to see some newer teams in there. I say newer. Um, a couple of them were. But uh, the AFC, we'll start off in the AFC game. That was the number four Cincinnati Bengals against the number two uh, Kansas City Chiefs. And that game was at Arrowhead Stadium on Sunday afternoon. It was a rematch of the Week 17 game that took place in Cincinnati where the Bengals beat the Chiefs 34-31. Uh, neither team sat anybody. That was a, a well, well-fought game, and uh, it was a great game. But this game in particular, 
was at Arrowhead. Chiefs coming off a dramatic victory against Buffalo uh, with lots of scoring. You know, we, we covered that last week. And early in this one, it was all Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City, you know, uh, Cincinnati got the ball to start. And they went three and out. Then Kansas City put together an 11-play, 84-yard drive, wrapped up by a 10-yard touchdown pass from Mahomes to Tyreek Hill. Just an unbelievable pass. Scrambled out to the right through kind of a sidearm laser to Tyreek Hill in the back of the end zone. Hill made a great catch. Put Kansas City up 7-0. Cincinnati answered with a field goal, and then Kansas City answered with a seven-play drive that went 75 yards, and Patrick Mahomes found Travis Kelsey. He ran about 30 yards on the play to escape the pressure and avoid a sack and ended up uh, finding Kelsey in the end zone. So it was 14-3 Chiefs. Bengals punted. Kansas City got the ball back, went eight plays and 72 yards, and Patrick Mahomes... Uh, found Nicole Hardman on a short three-yard touchdown pass. That put the Chiefs up 21-3. to And uh, just it, at this point, you figured it was, it was going to be a rough day for Cincinnati. They couldn't stop Kansas City. They were having to settle for field goals. But right before the end of the, uh, the first quarter, uh, Cincinnati took its seven plays went 70 yards, 41 of which came on a little screen pass from Joe Burrow to Samaje Pirine. That got Cincinnati on the board with a touchdown there late in the first quarter. It was 21-10, and uh, that was the end of the first half, I should say. Uh, the first quarter, though, it was it was 7-3 Cincinnati after the first quarter, and uh, that was actually the first time the Chiefs have led after the first quarter in any of the last four AFC uh, playoff championship games that they were in. And uh, so the first half, it was 21-10 at halftime. Uh, Kansas City got the ball. They were forced to punt. The teams traded some punts there early in the third quarter. Uh, Cincinnati then kind of took a good 11-play drive, went down, got a field goal out of it. So it was 21-13. And uh, then Kansas City ended up throwing an interception, gave the ball to Cincinnati. Cincinnati ended up scoring. Joe Burrow hooked up with Jamar Chase for the touchdown, and they got the two-point conversion. Beautiful play. Jamar Chase drew all the coverage. And so uh, that gave Cincinnati uh, a tie game at 21 there with 11 11 points in the third quarter for Cincinnati to tie the game at 21. Fourth quarter rolls around. Uh, teams traded punts. Burrow threw an interception. Uh, didn't cost them. Cincinnati actually ended up getting the ball back uh, with about 12 minutes left in the fourth. They took six and a half minutes off the clock and settled for a field goal, 52-yarder by Evan, Evan, Evan McPherson. So that... Uh, put the Bengals up 24-21, to 21, and they actually had scored 21 straight unanswered points at that point. They got down, of course, they were down by 18, came back, scored 21 straight, took the lead. So the Chiefs got the ball with about six minutes left, ended up putting together a 14-play drive. It only went 49 yards, uh, and they settled for a uh, Harrison Butker 44-yard field goal to tie the game as the regulation expired. So you get into overtime, 
And, uh, of course, we've seen this narrative before. Kansas City won the coin toss in overtime, got the ball first. They only ran three plays. Mahomes overthrew uh, Robinson, tried to hit Robinson on another pass, and it almost got intercepted. And then the third pass was intended for Tyreek Hill deep down the left side. It was deflected by Jesse Bates, intercepted by Vaughn Bell. Now that play took place uh, 13 seconds into overtime, which if you recall, in the AFC Championship game against Buffalo, Mahomes only needed 13 seconds to move the ball 44 yards down the field to tie it, to force overtime. Well, in this overtime, uh, that was... the divisional round against Buffalo, I'm sorry. here, But here in the conference championship, the 13 seconds came back to bite them because it only took 13 seconds for the Chiefs to turn the ball over in the AFC conference championship game. So interesting stat there. So Cincinnati got the ball uh, at about midfield, and uh, they ran nine plays. They went 42 yards. It looked like they were going to score. Uh, Joe Mixon uh, had a couple of big runs kind of get them close, looked like they were going to score, but they ended up settling for uh, a field goal attempt. And on that was a 31-yard attempt, and uh, rookie Evan McPherson drained the field goal in overtime to give the Bengals the win and send them to the Super Bowl. Now, Cincinnati's 18-point comeback was tied for the largest comeback in a conference title game since the 2006 Indianapolis Colts versus the New England Patriots. And it was the Bengals' first time ever winning three straight postseason games. Okay, this was also Cincinnati's seventh win this season, including the this is including playoff games, seventh win this season by the Bengals by seven points or fewer, which is the most such wins in the NFL. Now, the box score on this, uh, Joe Burrow was 23 of 38 for 250 yards, two touchdowns and interception. Joe Mixon had 21 carries for 88 yards. And through the air, T. Higgins had six catches for 103 yards. Jamar Chase, six for 54 and a touchdown. Samaj P. Ryan, three for 43 and a touchdown. Now, Jamar Chase, with those 54 yards, he set an all-time uh, NFL rookie record for most receiving yards in a postseason, passing Austin Colley, who had 241 yards, and Torrey Holt, who had 242 yards in their rookie season. So, uh, And that is still going because Jamar Chase now has a Super Bowl to play in. And on the Kansas City side of things, Patrick Mahomes was 26 of 39 for 275 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. Jarek McKinnon had 12 carries for 65 yards, and I feel like almost all of those were in the first half. They were running the ball at will in the first half, getting eight or nine yards a carry, and then they basically just stopped in the second half, which I think may have been one of the reasons contributing to their their downfall. But on the receiving side of things, Travis Kelsey, 10 catches for 95 yards and a touchdown. That's an average day for him. Tyreek Hill, 7 for 78 and a touchdown. And I'm pretty sure most of those were in the first half as well. Uh, And then Nicole Hardman, 3 catches for 52 yards and a touchdown. Now, Patrick Mahomes, okay, I told told you the Chiefs, they had a 21-3 lead in the second quarter. Mahomes started this game off 17 for 19 for 220 yards and three touchdowns. After that, when they got up 21-3, Mahomes finished the game 9 for 20 passing for only 55 yards and two interceptions. His 
QBR quarterback rating was 1.4 in the second half and in overtime, which is just unbelievable. And prior to this game, Patrick Mahomes uh, was 37-0, including playoff games, in his career when he had a lead of 15 or more points in the game. So he's now 37-1. and And I know Mahomes does not play defense, but there's absolutely no way Kansas City should have lost this game. This game, this loss is really heavily on Mahomes' shoulders. You know, he only completed 9 of 20 passes for 55 yards uh, in that second half in overtime. Just absolutely horrible. And, um, you know, it was a complete shock. You know, Cincinnati's a good team, obviously. I picked Kansas City to win the game. I said I wanted the Bengals to win. So as a football fan, I was happy that they won. But I did pick Kansas City to win the game, so I did get that pick incorrect. So that brings us over to the NFC championship game. So Cincinnati is your uh, AFC conference champion. Uh, That brings us over to the NFC championship game. That featured the number six San Francisco 49ers against the number four Los Angeles Rams. This game was at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. And this SoFi Stadium, uh, we talked about it last week, was the first. They're also the host of the Super Bowl. So it's the first stadium to host both a conference championship and a Super Bowl in the same season. Now, this matchup was an NFC West division rivals. Uh, They met twice in the regular season, Week 10 and Week 18. San Francisco actually won both of those games. They had come into this thing winning the last six games against the Rams. Uh, Just complete domination. It was the fourth ever conference championship between division rivals. And, uh, you know, San Francisco came in with a lot of confidence. This was their fifth NFC title game appearance since the 2011 season. And uh, the game started out kind of slow. We had a scoreless first quarter. Scoring picked up here in the uh, second quarter uh, when we had uh, the Rams got on the board first. They put together just an absolutely unbelievable 18-play, 97-yard drive. It only took nine. I said it took nine and a half minutes. So it took almost the entire second quarter but they went the length of the field in 18 plays, and Matt Stafford found Cooper Cup for a 16-yard touchdown in the back of the end zone. Terrific route, terrific throw. Everything about it was very impressive, so that put the Rams up 7-0. San Francisco, though, they answered on the very next drive. They went 75 yards in four plays. Uh, Long pass to Brandon Ayuk, who almost ran down the sidelines, but it was 31-yard pass. And then... uh, Debo Samuel doing what Debo Samuel does, 44-yard touchdown pass from Jimmy Garoppolo to tie the game there at 7. The Rams on their ensuing drive, they missed a field goal, which is very uncharacteristic. Now, it was a 54-yard field goal attempt, uh, but nonetheless, those have been automatic for Matt Gay this year, so he missed that. Then 49ers took it down the field, and they ended up kicking a field goal right before the half to take a 10-7 lead at halftime. Now, Rams tight end Tyler Higby got hurt in that first half, and he did not return to the game. So it was a big loss uh, on on offense there for the Rams, but uh, they still were only down 10-7 to at halftime. But the second half uh, started out. San Francisco got the ball. They ended up punting. Rams get it. They go seven plays, 46 yards, 
and they have a fourth and one. Matt Stafford tries to sneak it up the middle, and he's stuffed. They mark him short. They rule him short. And this was one of two. Sean McVay had two very questionable challenges here in the second half. This is the first one. Uh, it was pretty clear Stafford never got the line of scrimmage on that. And uh, the ball was uh, at San Francisco's 43. So I get why they went for it. Uh, but if you punt, you know, I, I don't, you're only giving up maybe 20 yards of field position uh, on that. So I don't understand why he would waste a timeout or risk a timeout. He ended up losing the challenge and losing a timeout, which did not make any sense. On that next possession, the Rams or the uh, 49ers, rather, they took it down the field, went 10 plays, 58 yards. Jimmy Garoppolo found George Kittle for a 16-yard touchdown, put the 49ers up 17-7. to Big drive here uh, at the end of the third quarter for the Rams. They uh, ended up taking it 75 yards down the field in uh, just over three and a half minutes. Matthew Stafford again found Cooper Cup, 11-yard touchdown pass. Huge game for Cup, just doing what he does. Uh, that brought it to a 17-14 uh, uh, 49ers lead. That touchdown pass was actually third play of the fourth quarter, so uh, it was 17-7 at the end of three. And then that fourth quarter, the Rams uh, still had the ball. They ended up getting that cup touchdown to bring it within a field goal. Uh, and you could see on the sidelines at this point, Aaron Donald was, uh, you know, revving his guys up, getting the defense ready to go. They ended up forcing a San Francisco punt. Uh, this next drive uh, on third and two, the uh, 49ers ran a, a sneak with Kyle Hughes check up the middle, and he was short on that, but he reached the ball out, and it may have come out. Um, at least that's what it appeared uh, on field level. So McVay, again, I mentioned two questionable challenges. This was the second. He challenged that it was a fumble. So that the Rams had stopped him. It was fourth down. The 49ers were getting ready to punt. McVay challenges this play that it was a fumble. And looking at the replay, the ball never came out of Hughescheck's hands, even as he extended the ball. So I don't understand, again, why he would waste a timeout on a challenge on a play that wasn't even close. Just a, not a great call. Uh, so the the call stood. They were still short. So San Francisco still punted. Got the ball back to the Rams. The Rams took it down. Ended up kicking a field goal to tie the game. 49ers again went three and out. Losing five yards on that drive. So they punted. And then uh, the Rams got the ball back with about six minutes left. Six and a half minutes left in the fourth. They uh, went 10 plays, 49 yards, and just over four and a half minutes. So they were chewing some clock, and then Matt Gay hit a 30-yard field goal with a minute 46 left Okay, to give the Rams a 20-17 to lead. Uh, and then that Rams defense went to work uh, on that next drive. San Francisco had a, an incomplete pass, a negative yard pass, and then on that third down and 13, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo had a bunch of pressure. Aaron Donald was draped on him like a curtain, was getting ready to sack him, and Garoppolo just flipped it uh, over to Jamichael Hasty. It hit off his hands, and it was intercepted by Trayvon Howard. So uh, that ended the game. The Rams just needed out. They got a 20-17 to victory, 
and uh, 13 points in that fourth quarter by the Rams to uh, come back and finish the job. Just an unbelievable game uh, by the Rams. The box score on this one for San Francisco, Jimmy Garoppolo was 16 of 30 for 232 yards, two touchdowns and an interception. Debo Samuel had seven carries for 26 yards, while Elijah Mitchell only had 11 for 20. Receiving Debo Samuel, four four catches, 72 yards, and a touchdown. Brandon Ayuk, four for 69. Uh, Elijah Mitchell, three for 50. And then George Kittle had two for 27 and that touchdown. And on the Rams side of things, Stafford just shows that he's playoffs are no thing for him. He uh, has no issues. He was 31 of 45. 337 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. Uh, Cam Akers, 13 carries, 48 yards. And then receiving Cooper Cup, 11 catches, 142 yards, two touchdowns. Odell Beckham, nine catches, 113 yards. And this was his first uh, 100-yard receiving game since week six of 2019. So it had been a long time since Beckham hit triple, triple digits. Now with Cooper Cup and his 142 yards, this was his 13th 100-yard receiving game this season, including the playoffs, which is the most 100-yard receiving games in an NFL season. So he is just continuing to just dominate, uh, shows to be matchup proof. You know, there was a big play on that Rams drive where they ended up kicking the field goal to go ahead. Uh, the 49ers, you know, Stafford had threw a deep pass and uh, Jaquiski Tart uh, ended up trying to intercept it, and the ball hit off his hands. So if he makes that catch, I mean, it, there was nobody around him. I mean, the ball was his. If Tart makes that catch, this game might be a different, different story, different ending. 49ers may be representing the NFC in the Super Bowl, but that did not happen. He dropped the ball. The Rams kicked that field goal, and uh, the Los Angeles Rams will be representing the NFC in the Super Bowl I did correctly pick that game. Uh, so that brings my uh, postseason record to 8-4 and four on the year after going 1-1 one and one in the conference championship. So I'm 8-4 and four in my playoff picks. But that sets up the Super Bowl 56 matchup between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, games at SoFi Stadium, the Rams get to play a home game. We'll have a full uh, preview and breakdown of that game on next week's episode. There's two weeks in between conference championships and the Super Bowl, so we got plenty of time to discuss that. I don't want to get into the Super Bowl preview just yet, so we'll save that for next week's episode. But there is lots to discuss about this Super Bowl matchup here between Cincinnati and Los Angeles. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League and do a standings update there. We have officially reached the All-Star break here in the NHL. And the All-Star game is this Saturday, February 5th. It's at 3 o'clock Eastern on ABC and ESPN+. Plus. But on Friday night is the NHL Skills Competition, Friday, February 4th at 7.30 Eastern on ESPN. And... We have for the for the All Star game itself. There's been we, we went over the rosters a couple episodes ago. There's been some minor roster adjustments due to some injuries, and uh, th- basically all of the divisions have had at least one replacement. Uh, in the Metropolitan Division, Evgeny Kuznetsov replaced Adam Fox, 
and Tom Wilson replaced Alex Ovechkin, who landed on the COVID list the other day. In the Atlantic Division, Brady Kachuk replaced Drake Batherson, who got injured. Uh, Central Division, Roman Yossi replaced Nathan McKinnon. And uh, Stars forward Joe Pavelski was named the captain since McKinnon was originally named the captain and got hurt. And then in the Pacific, I know Jonathan Marcheseau from Vegas was added to that roster. But all in all, there's going to be 19 first-time All-Stars out there in the NHL All-Star game. And it's going to be an outstanding weekend. Uh, entertainment galore. Machine Gun Kelly, he's going to headline the entertainment, uh, at least for the weekend. But uh, as far as the skills competition goes, the uh, NHL unveiled its first-ever All-Star skills competition outdoor events and the first one is the discover nhl fountain face-off this is super cool it's going to be staged at the fountains of the bellagio there's going to be eight participants who will travel by boat to a quote rink inside the bellagio fountain they must successfully shoot pucks as quickly as possible into five targets that are placed in the water And they'll have to fight through the spray and the mist of the Bellagio Fountains while doing so. Qualifying players then move on to a head-to-head final. So that seems awesome. I mean, what? who's not going to want to watch people shooting pucks inside the water of the Bellagio Fountain? Uh, Sign me up for that, for sure. And then the other competition that's outdoors is going to be the NHL 21-22 competition. And that's actually going to shut down part of Las Vegas Boulevard, which is otherwise known as the Strip. So it's going to be outdoors on the Strip. They're going to close part of the Strip down. There's going to be a basically a wall of oversized playing cards, a full deck of playing cards. Um, and it it's basically the equivalent of hockey blackjack. Players are going to stand, you know, however many feet away, and they're going to try to build a hand that sh- that equals 21 by shooting pucks at these cards. So uh, they have to do, they have to get 21 in the least number of shots without uh, busting, basically. And the player who wins two rounds is going to be called the puck shark, and it's going to be five player field for that. So <clears throat> that's going to be very cool to watch this Friday night. Of course, the All-Star game with the new format, the three-on-three, that's really interesting to watch as well. Fast-paced, good hockey, and uh, so NHL All-Star Weekend should be really awesome. But as soon as we get done with All-Star Weekend, we have that uh, two, two-and-a-half-week window between February 7th and February 22nd that would have been designated for the Olympic break, but the NHL is choosing to use that to make up the games that have been postponed this year uh, for covid Uh, 95 of the 98 postponed games will be played in the next couple of weeks as made up. So a lot of hockey coming at you over the next couple weeks. But um, we're going to do our standings update, uh, the wild card standings update like we've been, like we did last episode where we just go over the top three teams in each division and the top two wild card teams along with a couple of teams that still have a chance to make the playoffs. And we'll start off in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division. The Carolina Hurricanes are up top there at 31-9-2. They come in on a four-game winning streak. New York Rangers are 30-13-4. They just continue to play good hockey. Um, I I think that's going to continue after the All-Star break. 
Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins are 27-11-8. and eight. They're third in the Metropolitan. Then over in the Atlantic Division, the Florida Panthers. They're 32-10-5, and five, uh, sitting up top the Atlantic Division at the All-Star break. They had a win in Columbus on Monday night by a score of 8-4, which was the last night of January. That brought their January month goal total to 73 goals, which is the most goals scored in a single month by any franchise over the last 25 seasons, uh, which is just simply insane. That that offense is uh, really humming. The Tampa Bay Lightning are second in the Atlantic at 30-10-6. And, and then the Toronto Maple Leafs come into the All-Star break on a five-game winning streak. They're 29-10-3, third in the Atlantic. They're still five points back of Tampa and eight points back of Florida. That's insane. Uh, and then your wild card, the top two teams right now are the Washington Capitals at 25-13-9 and, and the Boston Bruins at 26-14-3. And uh, the Detroit Red Wings are the first team out of a wild card spot at the moment at 20, 21, and 6. They are nine points back of Boston. And then the Columbus Blue Jackets are 20, 22, and 1. They have 41 points. They're five points back of the Wings. And uh, the Blue Jackets the other day, I guess it was last week, about a week or so ago, they played the Calgary Flames. Columbus goalie Elvis Merz-Lincolns he made 56 saves in that game, and the Blue Jackets lost 6 to nothing. Right. I mean, you heard that right. Columbus gave up 62 shots to Calgary uh, in a game about a week ago. If you make 56 saves in a game, you ought to win, uh, or at least uh, make it to overtime. But they lost 6 nothing. So uh, that was that's insane. And then the only other teams that I think – if they get playing well, it would be the New York Islanders and the Philadelphia Flyers. They both have 38 points, so they're three points back of uh, Columbus and uh, eight points back of Detroit. So uh, they're really the only other two teams that can probably make the wild card in the East. But over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, the Colorado Avalanche, they are 32-8-4. and and uh, they've won nine out of their last ten. They actually had their 18-game home winning streak snapped the other night at home in an overtime loss to Arizona, of all teams. Uh, but last week, All-Star Center, the captain, Nathan McKinnon, or assistant captain, Nathan McKinnon, he suffered a broken nose last week on a, on a bad hit, kind of... Um, busted his face up pretty good. He missed a few games. They've they're basically they still don't know how long he's going to be out. They just said indefinitely. So, uh not really sure when we'll see McKinnon back, but certainly I guess he's got a chance after the All-Star break. Uh but Colorado nonetheless is the best team in the Western Conference. Nashville is second in the Central. Predators are 28-14 and 4. And then the Minnesota Wild they come into the All-Star break on a six-game winning streak. They're 28-10-3. Over in the Pacific Division, the Vegas Golden Knights are 27-16-3. Los Angeles Kings, 24-16-7. And the Anaheim Ducks are still looking solid at 23-16-9 uh, there in the Pacific. The wild-card teams at the moment, St. Louis Blues haven't been in a wild-card spot in a while. They've Minnesota has overtaken them by two points so the the blues are 26 13 and 5 
Calgary Flames are 23-13-6. They're on a three-game winning streak. They currently sit in that second wild card spot. First team out of the wild card spots at the moment, the Edmonton Oilers at 23-16-3. And And then my Dallas Stars at 23-18-2. They had won five out of six games, uh, swept the road trip last week, four games, come back, get demolished at home by the Capitals, then they demolished the Bruins uh, over the weekend, and then the other night they played the Flames at home. They were up 3-1 to one with about six minutes to go in the third, and they proceed to let Calgary score three goals in five minutes and 24 seconds to win the game in regulation and not even get a point. So, like I said, Dallas is 5-5 five and five over their last 10 games. That's just what they are. They're a 500 hockey team. They're not winning uh, consistently enough to make the playoffs. And so my fellow Stars fans that are listening, do not get your hopes up. I'm telling you now. I've been telling you for the last two podcast episodes, do not get your hopes up because this team is not making the playoffs. Uh, but they have 48 points. They're one back of Edmonton, four back of Calgary. The Sharks also, San Jose Sharks also have 48 points at 22, 20, and 4. Vancouver Canucks are 20, 20, and 6. And then the last team with a realistic chance to make a wild card spot, which is fading quickly the way they've been playing, is the Winnipeg Jets at 18, 17, and 7. Uh, they've only won twice in their last 10 games. So I think Winnipeg is about to get uh, cut from that list of teams that has a chance to make the playoffs. But Nonetheless, we've made it to the All-Star break here in the NHL. Uh, it's been an exciting first half of the year. Uh, we got a lot of hockey to be played in a kind of a shorter period of time over the next couple months. So uh, buckle up because it is going to be a fast and furious second half of the NHL season. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association, do some standings updates here in the NBA. A lot of teams have played around 50 games or so. Um, still a little ahead of the NHL in that regard, but um, we're just going to do, again, from moving forward, we're just going to do uh, basically the top 10 teams in each conference, uh, plus a few of the ones that could make the playoffs, you know, the way that the NBA is. Top six get in, seed seven through 10, have a play-in tournament, and then uh, the rest are eliminated. So, We'll go over who's kind of in contention for the playoffs. Starting in the Eastern Conference, the Chicago Bulls are still up top at 32-18. and 18. We talked last week they uh, they don't have um, Ball or Caruso. They both have gotten hurt and uh, going to be out for an extended period of time, but they're still hanging on. Miami Heat are 32-30. and 30. They've lost three in a row. Philadelphia 76ers are 31 and 20, although they have won seven out of their last 10. Milwaukee Bucks are fourth in the East at 32 and 31. Cleveland Cavaliers 31 and 21. They are currently fifth in the East. And then the most surprising, this is the biggest jump from last week's standings to this week. The Brooklyn Nets are sixth in the East at 29 and 22. They've lost six games in a row. Now, obviously, we talked about the Kevin Durant injury that's going to keep him out for a couple more weeks, a knee sprain. Uh, But they have Kyrie Irving back for road games. James Harden's still playing. They've lost six in a row. Uh, They're taking on water, and it is not a good time to be doing that. Uh, The Charlotte Hornets are seventh at 28-24. and 
and then the Toronto Raptors and the Boston Celtics. They're both on three-game winning streaks. Uh, the Raptors are currently eighth in the East at 26 and 23. The Celtics are ninth at 28 and 25. Uh, but they're both playing some good basketball at the moment. And then the 10th seed in the East is the Atlanta Hawks at 24 and 26. Uh, they've won seven out of their last 10. And Trey Young is, uh, of course, doing what he does. Should be heading to the All-Star game here uh, in a couple of weeks. The 11th seed, now these are the teams, uh, pretty much the uh, two teams in the East that aren't in a playoff spot now that can compete. 4-1, it's the Washington Wizards in the 11th spot at 24-27, and 27, and then the New York Knicks at 24-28. and 28. Uh, Those are really the only other two teams, uh, the uh, Indiana Pacers, Detroit Pistons, and Orlando Magic. Uh, do not believe any of them will be making the playoffs. Over in the Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns, <clears throat> they're still up top, the West at 41-9. and nine. They have an 11-game winning streak going right now. Uh, just unbelievable. That is their second uh, winning streak of 10 or more games this year, which makes them the first team to do that so far this year, the only team to do that so far of two winning streaks of at least 10 games. Uh, the Golden State Warriors, 39-13. and 13. Uh, They've won seven in a row, uh, eight out of their last 10. They played in San Antonio the other night, and they sat Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, uh, they had, of course, Draymond Green still still coming back from his back injury. So they sat literally every every good player they have except Jordan Poole, and they still beat San Antonio with basically bench players playing. So uh, that shows you how dangerous the Warriors are. Um, it's going to be a dogfight between the Suns and Warriors for the uh, top spot in the West for over the last uh, you know 30 games or so of the season. It's going to be fun to watch. But both of those teams are incredibly hot right now. Third in the West is the Memphis Grizzlies at 36 and 18. Uh, John Morant, he is having an absolute career year. Uh, Going to be an All-Star starter. Uh, recorded his third 40-point game of the season last week, and John Morant joined Steph Curry and Trey Young as the only three guards this season to have at least three 40-point games. So uh, he is something to watch, man. Uh, fourth in the West is the Utah Jazz at 31 and 21. Uh, they took a big blow the other day when Joe Ingles suffered a torn ACL, so he's out for the year. He was a good bench player that is uh, capable of hitting some clutch threes and kind of changing a game. So Ingles is out for the year for Utah, but they're still fourth in the West. Fifth in the West is my Dallas Mavericks at 29 and 23, although they have lost two in a row. They lost an absolute stinker the other night uh, at home against Oklahoma City in overtime. Uh, you just can't lose to Oklahoma City. Uh, literally, uh, just you just can't do it. Not, not as a playoff contending team. Luka Doncic had 40 points in that game, and they still lost. Uh, just big blow for the Mavericks, though, is guard Tim Hardaway Jr., he broke his foot this past week. He's already had surgery on it, and there is no timetable for his return. So uh, Mavs are going to have to be uh, without one of their starters for probably the next six to eight weeks at least, if I had to guess. Uh, but sixth in the West, the Denver Nuggets at 28-23. and 23. Seventh in the West is the Minnesota Timberwolves at 26-25. and 25. 
Uh, they've won a couple of games in a row here. <clears throat> the Los Angeles Clippers are eighth in the West at 26 and 27. And then the ninth seed in the Western Conference right now, the Los Angeles Lakers, 25 and 27. Uh, did not see this coming. Uh, Anthony Davis is back. LeBron's playing. So is Russell Westbrook. They got their trio going, and they've only won four times in their last 10 games. So not really sure what's going on there in L.A., but it is a mess. The Portland Trailblazers are 10th in the West at 21-31. and 31. They're on a three-game skid currently, uh, but they're still, you know, Dame Lillard's, you know, he had core muscle surgery, and he should be back towards the end of the year. Um, but they're still good enough to compete even without him, at least for a playoff spot. Uh, the 11, So those are the teams that are in the playoff spots right now. The first team out of a playoff spot at the moment, uh, the New Orleans Pelicans at 19-32, and 32, and then San Antonio Spurs, 19-33, and 33, Sacramento Kings, 19-34. and 34. I don't really see any of those teams getting in the playoffs, but they're only two games back of Portland, so those are all still in contention. And then the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Houston Rockets, I do not see either of those two teams uh, getting into the playoffs. But, again, uh, we'll have some uh, – the All-Star game is, is approaching. The, the rosters were announced, and uh, we'll cover the uh, All-Star rosters uh, in our Around the Island segment. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. Uh, just start off in the National Football League. We've got a lot more coaching and front office hires to go over. We've already covered a whole bunch over the last couple episodes, but we've had some more go down this past week. Uh, the Denver Broncos, they have hired Green Bay Packers offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett to be their new head coach. Uh, Hackett has spent the last three seasons as Green Bay's offensive coordinator calling plays for the Aaron Rodgers. And since Hackett took over as the OC in 2019, Aaron Rodgers is first in the NFL in passing touchdowns and fifth in the NFL in passing yards. So uh, there's been plenty of rumors saying that the Denver Broncos are going to be a major player for Aaron Rodgers this offseason with their putrid quarterback situation. So uh, the Broncos bringing in Nathaniel Hackett is a huge step uh, towards getting Aaron Rodgers to Denver. Now, I don't know if it's going to happen, but... um, <clears throat> certainly you got to think Rodgers would be a fan of, of playing for Nathaniel Hackett. Uh, the Chicago Bears, they have hired Matt Eberflus to be their new head coach. Eberflus has been the defensive coordinator for the Indianapolis Colts since the 2018 season. Prior to that, uh, he was an assistant coach for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, the Broncos and the Bears... Uh, both of those jobs were very much possibilities for Cowboys defensive coordinator Dan Quinn. Uh, he interviewed multiple times for each of those positions, Broncos and Bears. Uh, so when both of those spots got filled, Dan Quinn has come out and said that he is officially staying with the Dallas Cowboys as their defensive coordinator. So that is huge news for Dallas. I'm a big fan of Dan Quinn. he come in and uh, he's changed the face of that defense. So big news for them. Now, also with the Chicago Bears, they have hired Green Bay Packers quarterback coach Luke 
Getze as their new offensive coordinator. So uh, lots of changes happening on the Green Bay coaching staff. Um, we'll have to see how Matt LaFleur's staff looks after this year, but uh, they're definitely getting ransacked there. The New York Giants, they have found their head coach. It is Brian Dayball. Dayball is the offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills the last several seasons, and he is certainly one of the main guys responsible for turning Josh Allen into the elite quarterback that he is and the Buffalo Bills into the AFC powerhouse that they are. So uh, the goal is for Dayball to... uh, turn Daniel Jones into something close to what Josh Allen is, so we'll have to see on that. But I think Dayball's a good coach. It's a good hire for the Giants, good offensive mind. Uh, the Giants have a good offense at the skill positions. They just have a terrible offensive line, so they'll have to get that addressed. The Las Vegas Raiders, they have hired uh, New England Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels to be their new head coach. Uh, McDaniels replaces Rich Bisaccia who was the interim coach. And uh, while the Raiders hired Josh McDaniels, they also hired Dave Ziegler to be their new general manager. Now, Ziegler had been serving as the Patriots' director of player personnel. So both uh, McDaniels and Ziegler will leave the Patriots for the Vegas Raiders, and they look to get Vegas uh, back into the playoffs. The Minnesota Vikings, they have hired... Uh, their new general manager, his name is Kwesi Adolfo Mensa. All right, and Adolfo Mensa, he spent seven years as the San Francisco 49ers Director of Football Research and Development, and the last two years he spent in Cleveland's front office working under Browns general manager Andrew Barry. So doesn't have much front office experience, but he is the new general manager of the Vikings, and the Vikings have basically come out and have zeroed in on their coach. Uh, Los Angeles Rams offensive coordinator Kevin O'Connell has emerged to be the favorite uh, for the Rams' new, or for the Vikings' new head coaching position. Now, the deal can't be finalized until after the Super Bowl, obviously, with the Rams playing in the Super Bowl. But uh, I would fully expect the Vikings to name Kevin O'Connell as their new head coach as soon as the Super Bowl is over. Baltimore Ravens, they have hired Mike McDonald to be their new defensive coordinator. Um, Of course, Wink Martindale uh, left or got fired uh, after three years there. So uh, Mike McDonald takes over as the Ravens' new defensive coordinator, and he comes to them via the University of Michigan. Uh, McDonald has been the defensive coordinator at Michigan under Jim Harbaugh and has built them into an elite defense with the probable number one overall pick in Aiden Hutchinson playing on that defense. So it's going to be interesting to see how McDonald transfers from uh, Michigan to the NFL, Uh, but he certainly got quite a bit of talent on that Baltimore defense to work with, so we'll see how that goes out. But a couple of big retirements to go over. The first one Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger, he has officially announced his retirement after 18 seasons. He finished his career with 64,088 passing yards, 418 passing touchdowns, and 211 interceptions. Uh, He won two Super Bowls out of the three that he played in, six-time Pro Bowler, 
two-time NFL passing yards leader, and he holds two NFL records, one for the most 500-yard passing games in a season, or in a career, rather, and uh, which is four. He's got four 500-yard passing games, and then the most completions in a game, which is 47. So he's definitely a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, we knew this was coming after that last game um, in the playoffs there. We knew we knew Ben was going to retire. It was just a formality now at this point. And then the second one, uh, we weren't sure was going to happen, but it, it did happen, and that's Tom Brady, uh, the GOAT. He's retired from the NFL after 22 seasons. I mean, you guys know this this guy's resume. I don't really need to go over it. He's a seven-time Super Bowl champion, five Super Bowl MVPs. He's played in 10 Super Bowls in 22 years. He's won seven of them. Uh, Three-time NFL MVP, 15-time Pro Bowler, six-time All-Pro. He is the NFL's leader in career passing yards, 85,520, and passing touchdowns was 624. He also has the most wins in NFL history with 243. So uh, there was a report that he might not retire uh, after it was announced he would, but then he came to Twitter the other day or social media and said that he was, in fact, retiring. So with Tom Brady's retirement, the two oldest active players in the four major pro sports are both in the NHL, and that's Zdeno Chara at 44 and Joe Thornton at 42. So pretty impressive stuff there. Uh, But congrats to Brady, obviously. He's with Ben Roethlisberger. They're both going to be first ballot Hall of Famers, no questions asked. So um, it'll be interesting to see what Tampa and Pittsburgh do at the quarterback position this offseason. And with those two retirements, it is now officially the end of an era with some all-time great quarterbacks. With Brady, uh, both Peyton and Eli Manning are gone. Drew Brees uh, and Phillip Rivers are also retired. So... Uh, That has paved the way for this new era of young quarterbacks to take over the NFL. Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, those guys uh, are now the faces of the NFL. Uh, The last piece of NFL news deals with the Washington football team. They have officially announced their new uh, team name after two years of being the Washington football team. The name that they came up with after two years of hard work and preparation and thought and design is the Commanders, the Washington Commanders. Now, their uniforms are pretty cool. They're still uh, the maroon and gold. Uh, They got a black uniform. The uniforms look okay, Uh, but uh, the name has been catching a lot of flack since they released it. Uh, as you can understand why. I mean, it just sounds pretty basic. Uh, but uh, they are the Washington Commanders moving forward. So uh, they are still in the NFC East, so the Cowboys will play the Commanders twice a year. <clears throat> but over in the National Hockey League, last week the Vancouver Canucks announced that they had hired a new assistant general manager, Emily Castingway. Uh The Canucks since then have announced that they are hiring their new general manager, their head GM, Patrick Alvin. And uh, he's the 12th GM in Canucks history. He actually started his front office career with the Montreal Canadiens before going over to Pittsburgh. He was actually the interim general manager of the Penguins 
last year before Ron Hextall took over. So uh, the Canucks have a new GM there. The Arizona Coyotes are in, quote, advanced discussions with Arizona State University to use the uh, university's new multi-purpose arena as their temporary home for the next three or four seasons. Now, that stadium only has a seat capacity of 5,000, so uh, that doesn't quite meet the NHL's capacity requirements for full-time buildings, but since this is a temporary situation, um, there could be an exception to that new rule. But my thing is, is the Coyotes, they're planning on using that Arizona State venue for three or four seasons. It only holds 5,000 people. Now, that's not a lot, but when you watch a Coyotes game or you see a highlight of a Coyotes game, do they really have more than 5,000 people in a in their state or in their arena anyways? Like, I, I don't know. That's a sincere question. So um, maybe it'll look more full if they use that venue for the Coyotes games. Who knows? But uh, some free agent news in the NHL. Uh, free agent forward Evander Kane who was released from the San Jose Sharks due to some off-ice issues with some uh, domestic violence stuff and some, you know, COVID situations with uh, not complying with the vaccination issues and whatever else. He's he's had a a whole slew of off-the-ice issues. Um, He's already faced all the discipline he's going to face, no additional discipline, but uh, Kane has officially signed with the Edmonton Oilers it's a it's a one year contract. It's for the rest of the year. It's seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar contract, six and a quarter on the signing bonus, uh, but full no trade clause. And he actually scored a goal in his Edmonton Oilers debut the other night. So uh, he has come out looking pretty good. He is a good player. He just has some trouble with his uh, off the ice decision making. <clears throat> but over in Major League Baseball. We are still in a lockout here in the MLB. The two sides have met uh, over the last couple weeks. They've had a couple of meetings. And the first one, the MLBPA made a proposal uh, to Major League Baseball. There were no no agreement was in place. Uh, Major League Baseball actually counteroffered the proposal, um, and they kind of worked through some stuff. The MLBPA said they... They dropped their demand to change some rules in free agency, and it was sounding productive, basically. But then the two sides met again this past week for 90 minutes, and things reportedly got heated before the meeting ended. So uh, the MLB and the MLBPA are still very far apart in any kind of agreement, which is not good news because we're already into February. Pitchers and catchers were supposed to be reporting in a couple of weeks uh, with spring training starting in about a month. Uh, but that does not appear likely. Uh, ESPN reporter Jeff Passan has come out and said that uh, a delayed start to spring training looks imminent at this point. So it is a very likely situation that the Major League Baseball season will be delayed to start, which is a very, it's just a huge bummer. Um, You know, the two sides meeting and not getting anything done just is very frustrating. But some Some good news in Major League Baseball. The Hall of Fame class for 2022 was announced. And Boston Red Sox DH slash first baseman David Ortiz. He was actually the only nominee that was elected into the Hall of Fame this year. It was his first year on the ballot. 
So he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He got 77.9% of the votes, uh, which you only need 75%, I believe, 70%, I believe. Um, he's the fifth first ballot Hall of Famer in Boston Red Sox history, joining Pedro Martinez, Wade Boggs, Carl Yastrzemski, and Ted Williams. Pretty impressive list there. Uh, Ortiz was a three-time World Series champion, 10-time All-Star, seven Silver Slugger awards. He also won an ALCS MVP and a World Series MVP. He's a career 286 hitter, 541 home runs, 1,768 RBIs on 2,472 hits. Now, Ortiz did get in. However, there was four guys who did not get in, and this was their final time on the ballot, which means they are not getting elected into the Hall of Fame. That's Barry Bonds. He only got 66% of the votes. Roger Clemens at 65.2%. Kurt Schilling at 58.6%. And Sammy Sosa with 18.5%. So you need, like I said, 70% of the votes in order to get into the Hall of Fame. All of those guys, those four, Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, and Sosa, are all Hall of Fame players based on their performance. But they're all at the center of the PED controversies over the over the years, um, which doesn't make sense to me because the sign there's a sign at the Baseball Hall of Fame entrance that literally says that the Hall of Fame's job is to preserve history. So that should be including all Hall of Fame caliber players, regardless of performance enhancing drug usage, uh, because we know every player. In that, from that era forward, has has used some kind of PEDs. Um, in fact, you want to talk about David Ortiz? He went from being a 240 hitter, averaging 13 home runs and 40 RBIs per season in his first 2,200 plate appearances, to a guy that hit between 270 to 290 every year with over 30 home runs and 100 RBIs per season in his prime. That did not just happen overnight. Um, he was on PEDs. He just didn't get caught. Uh, so it seems that Major League Baseball is kind of picking and choosing uh, who they want to let in, which I don't agree with, obviously. I think Barry Bonds needs to be in the Hall of Fame, along with Sammy Sosa, Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling. So uh, maybe one day they'll they'll get their stuff together and figure that out. But as of now, uh, those four guys are not going to be in the Hall of Fame. But over in the NBA, uh, the All-Star starters were announced. Still waiting to hear on the the reserves for the All-Star teams. But your Eastern Conference All-Star starters in the NBA, uh, the Eastern Conference uh, captain is Kevin Durant from the Brooklyn Nets. And then the other four starters, along with Durant, Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Philadelphia 76ers, Joel Embiid, Atlanta Hawks, Trey Young, and Chicago Bulls, DeMar DeRozan. Those are your five Eastern Conference starters. Over in the Western Conference, your captain is Los Angeles Lakers forward LeBron James. Who else, right? This is his 18th consecutive start in an All-Star game, which is an NBA record. Just insane. 18 years in a row he started the All-Star game. And then your other four Western Conference starters, Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets, Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors, John Morant of the Memphis Grizzlies, and then the surprising one to me is Andrew Wiggins from Golden State. Uh, I don't know how he got the start, 
over the likes of uh, like a Luka Doncic or something like that. Uh, but nonetheless, Wiggins is an all-star starter. Uh, the all-star reserves are going to be announced uh, shortly, and the uh, NBA all-star draft is scheduled for Thursday, February 10th. So the all-star game is not till February 20th. So we'll talk about the all-star reserves uh, on next episode after they are released. But over to college football real quick. A couple of big transfer portal updates. Uh, former USC quarterback Jackson Dart, he has announced that he is transferring to Ole Miss. Uh, there were rumors that he was strongly considering Oklahoma, but uh, he also ch- ultimately he, he chose to head to uh, Ole Miss instead of OU. But speaking of Oklahoma, the Caleb Williams saga, that has officially come to an end. Uh, Caleb Williams announced that he is transferring to USC to play for Lincoln Riley. Um, big freaking shocker there, right? Did we think, you know, we had talked over the last couple episodes about LSU and Wisconsin becoming strong contenders for Caleb Williams, but did we really think that that was going to happen and that he was going to go anywhere other than USC and follow Lincoln Riley? Because I sure didn't think, I mean, it was pretty much once, once he was spotted in LA with Lincoln Riley and tour in USC, I mean, that was pretty much a done deal that he was going to USC. So, um, not a surprise there, but it is officially official. So Caleb Williams is a USC Trojan. But uh, that's going to wrap up this episode of Sports Island. And, um, you know, we got uh, the Pro Bowl this weekend. We don't have any playoff football. We got that one-week buffer in between uh, the conference championships and the Super Bowl, which is the week of the Pro Bowl. So the Pro Bowl will be on this week. It's you know, it'll be fun. It's it's kind of a dog and pony show, but it'll be fun uh, to watch these guys get out there. Uh, got some good golf this week at Pebble Beach, so be sure and tune into that. And uh, next week we'll go over uh, our Super Bowl 56 preview with an in-depth look at it from all angles. So uh, be sure and tune in to next week's episode. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.